Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. A pretty powerful scene in terms of the, I mean, obviously I can't mimic James Earl Jones, but that voice, remember who you are. It's a pretty powerful scene, and it's kind of a gut check time for Simba. By gut check, some of you know, just one of those times in life, one of those seasons in life where you're, you're brought back to what am I all about, what's the essence of who I am, where am I going, what's my life about, gut check time for Simba. It, 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 it dawns on me regularly when we gather together, and it did again today, just in walking around and observing people and whatever, and I don't know why this occurs to me when it does, but it did again today, that every single time we come in here, every single time we're gathered in the presence of Christ, there are people who are dealing with stuff, going through things, feeling things deeply, feeling their lives deeply, experiencing turmoil, pain, remembering tough stuff, feeling heartache, longing for God, reaching out to Him, crying out to Him. The reality of life kind of breaches all their defenses and gets to them in some way. And just sitting here, it could be the lyric of a song, it could be someone's prayer, it could be whatever. And it just gets to people. And it happens all the time. And sometimes this gathering right here is a gut check, a time for us to sort of let God have freedom to speak to us, to move in the deep places within us, to remind us of who we are, remind us of what life is really about. And certainly the story we're going to briefly look at today is a gut check story for a woman named Hagar. So if you'd stand for our scripture reading, I'm going to read Genesis 16 and I'll read the first 10 verses. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's a whole bunch going on in this story. We're only going to look at a very small slice of it. We could talk about this for quite some time. But to cut to the chase on the circumstances surrounding this particular question, God asks, think of it this way, a single 
pregnant Egyptian servant named Hagar is discouraged, lonely, confused. Her life is not going the way she wants it to, and she can't take it anymore. The pressure has become unbearable, so she packs her few things and she leaves, but she has nowhere to go. She has no money. She has no family, no friends, no job, no future, no prospects. She has nothing, but she leaves anyway, and she heads out into the vast unknown. And just to kind of pause for a sidebar, I really like the fact that here in our Bibles is the account of a woman, a woman who was a stranger in an unknown land. She is the servant of Abram and Sarai. She is an Egyptian. They are not. She is their slave, is the word that's used, but she is their servant. And she ends up pregnant. And I know the Bible says that she married Abram, but it's probably more realistic for us to think in terms of this is a woman who was a single woman. And she's pregnant. She's going to have a child. She's a stranger in a foreign land. And all of the challenges of a situation like that is bearing down on her. And I just think it's really important that we read stories like this in the Bible. It's just there in all of its rawness. So she heads out into the vast unknown. And in the vast unknown, she's literally wandering in the desert we read that God meets her in the desert. And he asks her two questions. And the one we're considering today is this. Where are you going? It's a gut check question. It's one of those questions to pause and chew on. Where are you going? It has to do with where we are in life and where we're headed. Where we are going. The trajectory. And most of all, it has to do with what is God up to in the present moments of our lives. What's he doing in the right now? How's he showing up? What's he stirring in us? Where's he pointing us? Where's he leading us? How's he forming us and shaping us to be his man or to be his woman or child? It's a question to think about when life slows down long enough so we can actually think about. It's not a question we think about often, but it's a good one. Where are you going? I have a little old book at home. It's one of those books that adds kind of class and ambiance to a room, looks cool sitting on a shelf, but it's one of those books that's never actually read very much. It was written by Sir William Osler. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with who he was. It's called Aphorisms, from his bedside teachings and writings. So Osler, as I learned in the last couple of days, was a brilliant doctor, the founder of many things we today associate with modern medicine, such as a medical residency program. He was the one that came up with that idea. He was an original founder and lecturer at Johns Hopkins Hospital, an absolutely brilliant man with an unending mind, a voracious reader, a genius type. But the thing he was best known for and still remembered for was his devotion to his patients and his attentiveness to the humanness of his patients. One of his students wrote this about him at the beginning of this little book I have. He said he was a keen observer, a brilliant clinician. His contributions to medicine and medical education were important. He was a great teacher. But his main strength lay in the singular and unique charm of his presence 
in the sparkling brilliancy of his mind, in the rare beauty of his character and of his life, and in the example that he set to his fellows and to his students. He was a quickening spirit. He taught us that the treatment of the patient was the most important element in the treatment of disease. That the patient, not the disease, was the entity. And I was really struck by that. The patient, not the disease, was the entity. Brilliant doctor, pioneer of modern medicine, a mind that would never stop, but he never lost sight of the patient. The human at the end of all the science. And I share this with you because, in a way, each one of us is a patient. Different pathologies we have, different degrees of illness, if you will, different phases in the healing process, but patience nonetheless. And so we come to God and we come here to this gathering and we come, as we will in a few minutes, to the communion table and we come as we are with whatever bits of brokenness and whatever trace of disease lingers in us and we come to seek God's healing. We come to discover and find His transforming touch so we might be made a little bit more whole. And yet, the way our services, like many churches, the way these services are typically designed with a brand new sermon on a brand new topic every single week, it is really easy to forget that the pursuit we are on together is not one of stuffing more Bible information into our heads. It's not one of mainly learning about the science of theology or mainly extracting nuggets ripping them out of some passage of the Bible. It's not even about understanding a topic better. We are patients in search of God's healing and transformation, and our great physician tends to each one of us and to the particulars of our lives, our thoughts, our character, our personality, our past. All of that converges And God, our great physician, tends to it, and he wants to bring his healing to these aspects of ourselves, and he wants to bring this healing into the life of our congregation. And this takes time, lots of time. So this series about God's questions, at least in my mind, has been kind of fun. God asks profound questions, as we might expect, and these questions trigger all sorts of collateral reflection. And I think, based on the various conversations I've had and on conversations I've heard about, this has been a helpful series for us. It has been redemptively disruptive. It's stirring up good things. It's shaking us in some areas of comfort. But these have not been simple questions with easy answers. These are questions that require some time for them to sink in and time in prayer to invite God's Spirit to open up space for us to consider the implications of these questions. Not something we are all that good at doing. Each week, again, like many churches do, we jump from one topic to the next, one question to the next, and we give minimal time and space for what is sometimes called holy pondering, for interaction with God's Spirit about what He's saying to us Through these questions, we don't give a ton of time just for you to come and to be and to think about what is God stirring up in you and how might he want to move you further up and further into his kingdom and in particular over the last few weeks through these questions. 
And I got to tell you, it's kind of a confession. I'm not that great. In fact, I'm sort of poor at remembering this idea that you and I are patients and each of us is on a journey toward God's healing. And we as a congregation are on a journey together toward God's healing. And each of us as a patient is at a different place and the spirit is at work in each of us in some way. Sometimes I fall prey to the deliciousness of a new topic to dive into and explore and rip apart. I get excited, if you will, about the science and the disease and the theories. And these things overwhelm attentiveness to the patient and to their healing process. And I know I, in my role here, don't always give space for slow and holy pondering. What's God up to? What's he saying to you? So today I want us to slow down a bit and maybe not just rip apart this question and throw a whole other thing into the mix. Pause, slow down, and use this question of where are you going to reflect a bit about the things we've been talking about. Again, using this question to Hagar, where are you going? Or to say it this way, what's the Spirit up to in your life? I would encourage you to think about that right now. What's the Spirit of God up to in your life? What's he doing in you? What's he turning over? What sort of themes keep coming to you? What impressions does he keep impressing on you? Over the past few weeks, as we've wrestled with these questions from God, how has God been stirring in you? What has come up as, wow, I should take a look at that. A few weeks ago, we considered God's question to Adam and Eve after they had sinned, the question, where are you? This idea of being real with God, being honest with God, coming out from hiding, shedding the false self, shedding the pretend self, abandoning this project of trying to look the part, sound the part, act the part, or fake a part. And my sense is, is that people want this. But this is a massive issue. People who have been hiding behind religious impressions don't just come out from those things because we talked about it for 30 minutes on some weekend. But my sense is people want this. They're hungry for this kind of realness. People are tired of religious games, and yet this idea of authenticity and realness is scary. So the question, what might the Spirit be doing in you or in us around the idea of being real? A couple of weeks ago, Kent talked about God's question to Moses. What's in your hand? I can't, every time I say that, I think, what's in your wallet? But that's not what it was. It's, what's in your hand? What do we have? What do you have that God can use and work through to bring his shalom into this world? There is no question that there's something in your hand that God wants to use for his purposes. Every last one of us. The question is, what is it that God wants to use to bring his shalom into the world. I've talked to several people who are moved by that message Kent gave. And they were stirred to think about what's in my hand that God could use for his kingdom and for his purpose. So the big question to Hagar, where are you going? As we think about that today, where am I going? Perhaps a sub-question, what's in my hand that God could use for his kingdom and for his purposes? And am I using it? Am I moving in that way? What's the Spirit doing in you regarding service for His kingdom? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at God's question to Cain and to us, why are you angry? And I've had many conversations since 
with those whose face, eyes, tears, and voice indicate beyond all doubt that they have carried a lifetime supply of anger for a lifetime. It hides in various ways. It tucks into the corners of our inner being. It doesn't always look like anger. It doesn't always come out as rage. But there's this ferociousness that's become embedded in our DNA. Anger has become the limp we walk with because we have no clue how to heal the limp and we have growing doubt as to whether or not the limp of anger is even healable. And one conversation I had over the last couple of weeks about this subject lasted about 48 seconds and after the first 23 seconds, tears just gushed out of this person's face. And I sensed as they were crying and trying to talk a long history of anger in their case, directed straight at God. So what does one do with their anger at God? So whether it's passive anger, aggressive anger, anger towards strangers on the freeway, anger at our spouse that's just been growing and building and brewing for decades, anger at God, none of that goes away because we spent 30 minutes talking about it on a Sunday morning. And it's kind of absurd to stir this up And then come back seven days later and talk about something completely unrelated. So what's the spirit up to in you around the issue of anger? Where is he stirring? What step might he be inviting you to take? Gut check time for Simba. Remember who you are. Gut check time for Hagar. Where are you going? If you recall, God's answer was pretty profound. Not unlike what James Earl Jones said to Simba, God said to Hagar, go back to your mistress and submit to her and I will be with you. Wait a minute. That's where the trouble is. That's the past. That's where the pain is. That's where the heartache is. If I go back there, life's not going to be any good. I don't want to go back there. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. And God says, I'll be with you. In that process. What's our gut check today? What's the Spirit saying to you? What's He stirring in you? What's He calling you into? That's the personal side of this. There's also a communal side because we are a faith community. So beyond the personal, it's good for us to pause now and then as a congregation and ask, what's the Spirit up to in the midst of our church? I have two things I want to mention. I mentioned this next giving campaign a little while ago. And one of the things that people were asking about and still ask about is, okay, so we pay this debt off. What then? What do we do with the extra money? What do we do with the money saved? What are we actually thinking about in terms of the future? What's the vision? And the truthful answer to all that is, I'm not entirely sure and I'm not sure that I'm the one who should figure all that out. We pay off the debt. We believe that's what God is calling us to, to open up space. And one of the things we think that will open up space for are new staff people who can lead in new and creative and imaginative areas of our church so that we can reach a post-Christian culture. So it opens up space for future leaders. It opens up space for new ideas and for ministry that reaches post-Christians. And it opens up space within our congregation for new perspectives and for creativity. So our elder board and our staff and several others have been in conversation and in prayer for about two years now regarding uh, a pastor who shares our spiritual formation 
priority who can lead us in the area of living on mission in our everyday lives. We haven't had anyone in mind. Few people have come up here and there. Didn't work out. We didn't formally post a job because I don't want a thousand resumes to sift through. But it kind of spread the word to see if organically it would get out what would happen. Looking for a DNA match. Who would get us? Who would like what we're trying to do? Who aligns with this idea of life in God's kingdom and spiritual formation? But for the last year and a half or so, nothing has happened until about a month ago. I was in a conversation with a woman on the phone. She lives in Florida. She tracked me down to get my thoughts on co-pastoring based on my experience here with Kent in the 15 years we did that. One thing led to the next in this conversation. My head started to spin. I don't know if this is what it was, but it had kind of the feel of the Spirit of God up to something. More conversations happened with her and with her husband. Other staff had conversations. Elder board had discussion. And we sense God may be up to something with this couple. So they're coming to visit us, us as in us, Oak Hills Church. They'll be here for a week of interviews and conversations. They'll be here from June 20th to the 26th. So this is the weird thing. Their names are Dan and Krista Carlson. No relation. They have three sons, eight, six, and four. Um, They're from California originally. They now pastor in Florida. And we're just going to see what happens. It's time to hang out together, be together, interviews, conversations, and see what God's up to. There's a very important meeting that I'd like to ask you to pencil into your calendar and plan on being there. It's on June 21st. That's a Friday. It's from 6 to 8 p.m. And we're going to have just a couple hours with Dan and Krista to hear their story, to learn who they are a little bit and to ask them questions and interact with them in a relaxed environment. We'll have dinner available, pizza or something like that. There'll be childcare available if you want it or need it, and just a night to interact. And I would urge you to make a note of that and plan on being there. You can go to the website, our website, and you'll see that event there, and you can sign up there and indicate if you need childcare. Then on June 23rd, which is a Sunday, they will be here. They will deliver the message that day. And they are going to actually split the message. So one of them will do part of it. The other one will do the other part. Their boys will be here for part of arts camp. So they'll be able to participate in that, at least for the first couple days. And over that time, there'll be tons of conversation and interaction. And the question as a church that we're just simply thinking on is, what's the Spirit of God up to in this? Is He doing something here? and potentially bringing them and us together. And the other thing is we start to prepare for the celebration of communion that I think God is up to in our midst and has been for some time, has it been in me and I think in us, is the idea of the importance of the celebration of communion. The celebration of community where the many gather together as one. And all the small I identities each of us has are surrendered and laid down as we remember our main identity as God's beloved daughter or son. So the small I identities related to age, race, politics, income, relational status, our past, our background, our gender, whatever, are laid down at the table as we honor Jesus as king, as we tend to his presence, as we learn to be aware of his presence among us and we recommit ourselves to submit to him 
and to one another. We are shaped by the values and principles and biblical realities we rehearse and experience at the Lord's table. It brings biblical and historical substance to our worship experience. When people sometimes say, and they do, I'm really into God, I'm just not into Church, one of the things that always comes up, it's crucially important, is this recognition of one of the main things we do together is in our differences, we come to the table and we remember who we are in Christ. We encounter him in Christ. So the table is a gut check for us. Because literally, again, I wish I was James Earl Jones right now, we remember who we are when we come to the table. This is who I am. This is who I am. Jesus' beloved child. This is who I am. A citizen of the kingdom of God. Apart from everything else and above everything else, more than anything else, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the principles and the values that are embedded in the reality of the kingdom of God are what I have committed myself to and who I have committed myself to become. And I remember and rehearse and encounter it again through the Lord's Supper. This is who I am. I am part of the people of God Jesus called the church. We are not just a group of individuals who have haphazardly decided to come to this place where we could go to any other place. That simply is not the case. We are connected together. We are knit together mysteriously through the risen power of Jesus Christ. And we come together to this table to remember yet again that we are part of the church and our participation in the church matters. We are the body here in this local expression called Oak Hills in this town called Folsom. And just like anybody, you do not tear a limb off and go, well, that's fine. We'll just go on from here. That doesn't work like that. Connected, knit together. It matters that we're all here. And it would matter if we weren't. This is who I am then. Brother to you. In Christ. And you, brothers and sisters, with one another. In Christ. People who are different, who love God and want to follow him. And we come to the table to celebrate this. So in a moment, ushers will come to the back of your section. They'll dismiss you out to your right. You'll come down to the front of the section and receive the bread and the cup. Continue across the front, back up the next aisle where you can return to your seat. We have gluten-free bread up here in the front. If you don't want to pull the piece off the loaf that is held out in front of you, feel free to just wander over here. And have some. There are prayer teams. There'll be two people over there and two over there. If there's any burden you have or any burden someone you know has and you want to go and and pray, have people pray for you or for your friends or whomever, just go up to the folks there and they will gladly do that. One of the things that I'm hoping we can continue to learn and grow in is this idea of what is Jesus up to when we celebrate the table? What's he up to, not from up here to the chairs, But what's he up to amongst you? What's he doing in the midst of this? As we center on him and feast at his table, what is Jesus doing in you and what is he doing among us? And I want to continue to encourage us to take risks during this time. To not settle for the same old. This is not an individual worship experience. This is a communal worship experience. 
So we have the opportunity to minister to one another when we're in this room together. My encouragement to you is to be attentive to what the Spirit of God might want you to say or do to someone else in this room. Someone you may know who's going through something. Someone who's been on your heart or your mind. Just a simple reaching out to them, expression of love to them, encouraging word to them, or going up to them and praying for them. That we would be the people of God and unhurriedly linger in this space. Let the Spirit of God have His way. Push past the instructions. Oh, I get out at this time and come forward and whatever. In fact, be real radical. Don't go when your row goes. Go some other time. But just simply be attentive to what God's doing and care for one another in this time. Our communion liturgy will be on the screen. It prepares us for the table. And so I invite you to follow along there. So if you'd close your eyes and bow your head, I want to just give you a moment or two of silence to prepare yourself to come to the table. So take a moment of quiet.